Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Les Miserables. At the end of the day, you're another day older. And that's all you can say for the life of the poor. It's a struggle, it's a war, and there's nothing that anyone's giving. One more day standing about, what is it for? One day less to be living. At the end of the day, you're another day colder. And the shirt on your back doesn't keep up the chill. And the righteous hurry past. They don't hear the little ones crying. And the winter is coming up fast, ready to kill. When they near it to dying. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. I hope that you are healthy. I hope that you are safe. I want you to know. As always, this is a Black Lives Matter podcast. This is a podcast that affirms the identity and the rights of trans people. We stand with anyone and everyone out there who is consistently fighting for their lives, for their dignity, for their civil rights. And as we continue to battle white supremacy and fight against police brutality, as we as we reckon within ourselves, our white listeners, I'm talking to you, as we reckon within ourselves our racist ideologies, as we try our best on a day-to-day basis to change and evolve and improve ourselves so that we can be at, in top form and we can stand alongside all of the people out there who need us. I just, I want us to keep reaffirming these ideas. And, you know, we achieve miles by inches, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be fighting for big changes in this country, right? We reorient ourselves politically here as we move into a discussion of Les Miserables. There's a lot to talk about with this week's subject. And here's the thing. Les Miserables is this big, flashy, melodramatic musical, but it is by nature political. It's dealing with a lot of the same political ideas that we see in the streets right now in this moment and that we have seen in the streets for decades and centuries in the past all over the world. I think everybody thinks of Les Mis as this very flashy, spectacle-based entertainment, and it is, but there's so much that we can plumb from it and use to sort of re-examine the world around us, and that's what art does, and that, uh, to a great extent, is what the podcast is here to do. We re-examine these subjects and we see what we can use from them when stepping out into the real world. We step out of the theater and back into the real world, and how does the art serve us? How does the art reflect our experiences, the experiences of people who are not like us, right? So that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here. And we have so much to talk about. So let's start with the show facts, shall we? Show me the show facts regarding Les Miserables, which is based on the 1862 novel by Victor Hugo, which goes by many names in the English-speaking market. The Miserables, the Wretched, the Miserable Ones, the Poor Ones, the Wretched Poor, the Victims, and the Dispossessed. I'm sensing a theme. 
The novel was an enormous success and is considered to be one of the greatest works of the 19th century, though at the time of its publication, critics were unimpressed. A review by L. Gauthier in the publication Le Monde, for example, found Hugo's depiction of revolution to be disturbing a sentiment many shared. Quote, One cannot read without an unconquerable disgust all the details Monsieur Hugo gives regarding the successful planning of riots. Quote, we'll circle back to this unconquerable disgust in the face of protest shortly. French novelist Gustave Flaubert found the work to be, quote, infantile, quote, and predicted it would bring about the end of Hugo's career, which he gleefully described as, quote, the fall of a god, quote. The poet Charles Baudelaire described Les Miserables as, quote, immonde et inept, repulsive and inept. While the Catholic Church made room for it in the Index Librorum Prohibitorum. I'm pretty sure your novel has some value if the Catholic Church deems it heretical. Prior to the stage musical, Les Miserables had been adapted several times. Friedrich March and Charles Lawton starred in a 1935 film adaptation that was nominated for three Academy Awards. Bonus fact, Lawton went on to star in another Victor Hugo adaptation, that being the 1939 film version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. A 22-year-old Orson Welles produced a seven-episode radio adaptation for which he also starred as Jean Valjean. That broadcast, which aired in 1937 served as the debut for Wells's Mercury Theater. Mercury Theater. Additional film adaptations were released in 1952 and 1958, and a British made-for-television version starring Anthony Perkins aired on CBS in 1978. French lyricist Alain Boublil was initially inspired to turn Les Miserables into a musical while attending a performance of Oliver. Quote, As soon as the artful Dodger came on stage, Gavroche came to mind. It was like a blow to the solar plexus. I started seeing all of the characters, Valjean, Javert, Gavroche, Cosette, Marius, and Eponine in my mind's eye, laughing, crying, and singing on stage. Quote, Boublil and composer Claude Michel Schoenberg hammered out the earliest version of the show over the course of two years, eventually producing a French-language concept album that was released in 1980 and sold 260,000 copies. That same year saw the first staging of the musical at the Palais de Sport in Paris, where over 500,000 people attended 100 performances. Most of the people who appear on the French concept album were cast in this production. A copy of the concept album made its way into the hands of Cameron Mackintosh, who agreed to produce the show in London alongside the Royal Shakespeare Company. Herbert Kretzmer was brought on to substantially rework the lyrics for English-speaking audiences, and on October 8, 1985, otherwise known as My Birthday on the Dot, the newly refurbished Les Miserables opened at the Barbican Center. It would go on to transfer to the Palace Theater in December 1985 and the Queen's Theater in April 2004. London critics, like those of Victor Hugo's original novel, were unkind, to say the least. Francis King of the Sunday Telegraph described the production as, quote, a lurid Victorian melodrama produced with Victorian lavishness, quote, while Michael Ratcliffe of The Observer called it, quote, a witless and synthetic entertainment, quote. 
Despite these thoroughly crinkled noses, the production was an enormous success to a degree that, when it temporarily closed in July 2019 to allow for a renovation of the Queen's Theatre, a four-month staged concert was produced at the Gilgood Theatre to account for the interim period. To celebrate the show's 25th anniversary and glorious return to the Queen's Theatre in December 2019, the venue was rebranded as the Sondheim Theater, and the production was completely restaged. I must say, the decision to rename the theater bothers me, if only a bit. It had been known as the Queen's Theater since its opening in 1907. No offense to Mr. Sondheim, but why change things up after 112 years for the sake of a composer who wasn't even British? At least reference Les Miserables, the show that's been at that venue for so long. Why not rename the theater after, I don't know, a character from the show or a song from the show? Eh, I suppose it's better than calling it the Royal Pepsi Cola Theater. Great joke, me. Thank you very much. You're welcome. As of March 2019, Les Miserables is the second longest-running show in the West End's history, having logged over 13,900 performances. Good luck beating our old friend The Mousetrap, which has over 28,000 performances on the books. The Mousetrap will outlive us all. Let's get the show facts regarding the original Broadway production of Les Miserables, shall we? It was the 1987 winner of the Tony Award for Best musical. It opened on March 12th, 1987 at the Broadway Theater before closing on October 14th, 1990 and reopening at the Imperial Theater on October 17th, 1990. The production ultimately closed on May 18th, 2003, having run for 6,680 performances. As of March 11th, 2020, Les Miserables is the sixth longest-running Broadway show in history, sitting between Wicked at number five, 6,836 performances, and a chorus line at number 7, 6,137 performances. The 2014 Broadway revival of Les Mis, which followed in the footsteps of a comparatively short-lived 2006 revival, currently holds the 114th spot on that list of longest-running shows with 1,024 performances. The book was written by Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alan Boublil. Original French text was provided by Alan Boublil and Jean-Marc Nattel, with additional text by James Fenton, and it is again based on the 1862 novel by Victor Hugo. The music was written by Claude Michel Schoenberg. The lyrics were written by Herbert Kretzmer. The English lyrics, I should say. The director was Trevor... Well, we have, well, 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 two directors here. The directors were Trevor Nunn and John Caird. Nunn and Caird also received an adapted by credit, according to the IBDB. The musical director was Robert Billig. The choreographer, well, we don't have a choreographer listed online, so that's an N.A. right there. Scenic design, John Napier. Lighting design, David Hersey, sound design, Andrew Bruce, and Autograph, a company that most recently produced the sound design for the 2020 revival of Company, and the costume design was by Andrian Neofitu. Andrian Neofitu, and I apologize if I mispronounced any of those names. I apologize if I mispronounced any of the following names from the original Broadway cast. David Bryant, Leo Burmester, Jennifer Butt, Jesse Cordy, Anthony Crivello, Brayden Danner, John Dewar, Broadway debut, Randy Graff, Paul Harmon, Joseph Kalinsky, Judy Kuhn, Norman Lang, Marcus Lovett, Broadway debut, Michael McGuire, Broadway debut, Terrence Mann, Kevin Markham, Chrissy McDonald, Broadway debut, John Norman, Broadway debut, Frances Ruffell, Broadway debut, reprising her role from the London production, Alex Santoriello, Broadway debut, Steve Shockett, Steve Shockett, yow, shock, and, okay, so we have two more here, Donna Vivino, Broadway debut, 
debut and Colm Wilkinson reprising his role from the London production. Les Mis is his only Broadway credit, though the IBDB does not list this as his debut, strangely enough. Tony nods. Okay, so this production won Best Musical, of course, as well as Best Book of a Musical, Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alan Bublil, Best Original Score, Alan Bublil, Claude Michel Schoenberg and Herbert Kretzmer, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Michael McGuire, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Francis Ruffell, Best Scenic Design, John Napier, Best Lighting Design, David Hersey, Best Direction of a Musical, Trevor Nunn and John Caird. And it was additionally nominated for Best Actor in a Musical, Colm Wilkinson, Best Actor in a Musical, Terrence Mann, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Judy Kuhn, and Best Costume Design, Andrian Neofitu. Twelve nominations in total, eight Tony Awards at the end of the evening. Eight Tony Awards at the end of the evening. Following the success of the stage musical, Victor Hugo's novel has been adapted several more times. Interested in sticking with films? Look to the 1982, 1995, and 1998 adaptations. If the TV miniseries is more your style, check out the 2000 version version starring Gerard Depardieu and John Malkovich, or the miniseries from 2018, which stars Dominic West, David Oyelowo, and Lily Collins. And if you're feeling bold, why not track down Les Miserables' Sojo Cosette, the 52-episode anime series from 2007. Your options are nearly limitless. Several unofficial sequels to Hugo's work have been published over the years, including Laura Kalpakian's Cosette, the sequel to Les Miserables, which is apparently more of an official, unofficial, I should say, follow-up to the musical, and a pair of French novels by Francois Caressa. The first is known as Cosette, or The Time of Illusions, and the second is known as Marius, or The Fugitive. Hugo's great-great-grandson, Pierre Hugo, filed a lawsuit to prevent the publication of those last Last two novels, but his efforts were unsuccessful. Now, if you're like me, you might be a little fuzzy on the details regarding the Les Mis plot. What exactly are the characters in Les Mis protesting? What are they fighting for? Well, I think that's why it's important to get a history lesson first. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the plot. We'll get to the plot summary in just a moment, but first I want to provide a history lesson on the July Revolution and June Rebellion. This is important context for understanding the events portrayed in the show, okay? The July Revolution, more commonly known as the French Revolution of 1830, and less commonly known as the Second French Revolution, or Trois Glorious, Three Glorious Days, resulted in the overthrow of King Charles X of the House of Bourbon. Charles was replaced by his cousin, Louis-Philippe, the Duke of Orleans. Those who supported Charles were known as Legitimists, while those who supported Louis were known as Orleanists. By 1832, Legitimists were clamoring to restore the House of Bourbon by removing Louis and replacing him with Charles's cousin, Prince Henri, the Count of Chambord. This was hardly the only example of political unrest in France at the time. French Republicans, who had fought long and hard throughout the July Revolution to eradicate the monarchy, were incensed by the fact that their efforts had only resulted in one king deposing another. Meanwhile, the Bonapartist movement sought to restore 
restore the House of Bonaparte style of governing, which was little more than a dictatorship, and then there was the general Parisian population, who recognized and were infuriated by the quality of life enjoyed by the aristocracy while they suffered. The cost of living was too damn high, food shortages were becoming more common, and a Parisian outbreak of cholera had resulted in 100,000 deaths throughout the nation. Does any of this sound familiar? The deaths of two prominent figures as a result of cholera factored greatly into the June rebellion that was to come. The first was Prime Minister Casimir Perrier, who supported the rule of King Louis and would thus have been known as an Orleanist. The second was Commander Jean-Maximilien Lamarck, Lamarck had served under Napoleon, and when Charles X was overthrown, he fought to suppress legitimists who opposed the rule of King Louis. So that would make him an Orleanist as well, but <laughs> in a shocking twist. Lamarck grew to become one of King Louis' most vocal critics, making it clear the people of France were suffering under his rule. Unsurprisingly, these statements made Lamarck very, very popular with the people of France. With the death of an ally, Prime Minister Perrier, as well as that of an opponent, Commander Lamarck, Louis found himself attacked from all sides. French Republicans, Legitimists, and Bonapartists were pounding on the king's door, and they were not fucking around. In the lead-up to the June Rebellion, there were a number of minor uprisings. During the Canute Revolt of 1831, for example, the French National Guard was sent to the city of Lyon to suppress a worker protest. When the National Guard wound up siding with the workers, French troops moved in to wipe out the problem once and and for all, does any of this sound familiar? In February 1832, a group of legitimists tried to carry off King Louis and the royal family as part of what is now known as the Conspiracy of Rue de Provere. The legitimist movement effectively came to an end when Caroline, Duchess of Berry, mother to legitimist hero Prince Henri, was imprisoned after staging her own insurrection. French Republicans, aware that it was illegal to form groups of more than 20 people, began forming secret societies to plan and execute protests. Wikipedia uses the term riots, but I am understandably suspicious of such language. These groups, including the Society of the Rights of Man, would serve as the inspiration for Victor Hugo's fictional band of student protesters, the Friends of the ABC. The Republicans identified Commander Lamarck's funeral as the perfect opportunity to make their presence known, and so on June 5th, 1832, the June Rebellion, otherwise known as the Paris Uprising of 1832, properly began. At first, everything went according to plan. The Republicans overtook the funeral procession and redirected it toward the Place de la Bastille, where the French Revolution had begun in 1789. Symbolism? The French Republicans, it should be noted, were joined by Polish, Italian, and German refugees who had been exiled from their own nations after fighting for Republican principles. Once assembled in front of the Bastille, protesters surrounded Lamarck's casket and delivered speeches extolling his political virtues. The protest turned violent when, and this bit reeks of history is written by the victors, a single a red flag was raised by a member of the crowd. This flag bore the phrase la liberté ou la mort, liberty or death, which caused a sudden clash between protesters and government troops. Hmm, I wonder who made the first move. I seriously doubt French Republicans went into a blind rage at the sight of a single red flag, so I'm putting my money on the troops. By nightfall, the nearly 3,000 protesters had managed to gain control of the eastern and central districts of Paris, and it was presumed their reach would extend further with time. 
Alas, this was not to be the case. 20,000 part-time militia from the French National Guard, aligned with 40,000 standard army troops, and led by King Louis, successfully managed to defeat the Republicans and regain control of the fallen districts. Of King Louis' forces, 73 were killed and 344 injured, while 93 were killed and 291 injured on the side of the protesters. In the wake of the June Rebellion, protesters were painted as a ridiculous yet dangerous minority. Does any of this sound familiar? King Louis was hailed as a glorious symbol of law and order at his next public appearance, while a painter named Michel Joffrey was imprisoned for allegedly waving the infamous red flag. A second man was arrested for this same crime, though his, quote, obvious mental instability, quote, factored into a lenient prison sentence. I mean, can't you just see the fingerprints of the victors all over this? Oh, only an unstable man would wave a flag. We shouldn't treat him too harshly. Yeah, you were going to hang Michel Joffrey before you chose to go with imprisonment. Yes, but we didn't hang him, and that's what makes us so wonderful. But what of Victor Hugo? Where was he throughout all of this? Well, he was writing a play in the Tuileries gardens on June 5th when he initially heard gunfire. Unaware that a great portion of Paris was falling to the control of the Republicans, Hugo ran toward the gunfire and found himself caught in the skirmish. Bullets flew past the writer in either direction as he hit amongst a series of columns, and after a quarter of an hour, he managed to walk away unscathed. Hugo's depiction of the June Rebellion in Les Miserables proved to be one of the few works of literature that bothered to capture this period of history, and as I mentioned earlier, most were displeased with his decision to side with the protesters. But Hugo, protests are so violent, so unseemly. Why can't these people who have so long suffered under our oppressive rule just shut the fuck up already? Does any of this sound familiar? Right, now that we have our history lesson, let us now talk about the plot of the musical Les Miserables, the year 1815, the place France, baby, France. Jean Valjean has been a prisoner for 19 years, and he is over it. Being a prisoner sucks. It's all do this, do that, tote that barge, lift that bale. What a slog. Luckily for Valjean, he is up for parole. Unluckily for Valjean, he will have to present a yellow ticket of leave to anyone he encounters in the free world. Tickets of leave suck. No one is nice to you when you have a ticket of leave. The malicious prison guard, Javert, is obsessed with Valjean and vows to keep an eye on him. Valjean is like, for God's sake, I stole a hot dog. My sister's son was starving. And Javert is like, oh, I'm sorry. Do I look like a tiny violin factory? Eat shit, you miscreant. Javert is not nice. He's bad. Boo! The ticket of leave does prove to be a problem for Valjean, as no one will give him work or a place to live. Or food! Thank heaven above for the Bishop of D, who is like, oh, come, 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 you disgusting, sorrowful spectacle. Stay with me! Valjean returns the bishop's kindness by promptly stealing a ton of silver, running away, and getting himself captured by the police. Ah, but the Bishop of D has one more charitable trick up his sleeve. He tells the cops that the silver was actually a gift, so go choke on a bear claw, you bastards. The Bishop
bishop then says, here, Valjean, have some more silver and get your shit together. Valjean is inspired. He tears up the ticket of leave and vows to start a brand new life. Flash forward eight years. Valjean, now known to the people as Monsieur Madeleine, is a wealthy factory owner and the mayor of Montreal-sur-Mer. One of Valjean's factory workers is a woman named Fantine. Here's the thing about being a factory worker. It sucks. The other workers treat Fantine like shit. Her daughter, Cosette, is being raised by an abusive innkeeper in another town. And the foreman is constantly trying to have sex with her. The foreman, bad, boo! Upon being unjustly fired from her position, Fantine is forced to sell her hair and become a prostitute. But when she attacks a customer, it draws the attention of none other than Javert. Yes, Javert is now a police inspector living in Montreal-sur-Mer. Luckily for Fantine, Valjean happens upon the scene, and feeling pity for his discharged employee, takes her to a nearby hospital. Unluckily for Fantine, she will die very, very soon. Shortly thereafter, Javert watches as Valjean saves a man who has been trapped under a cart. What you have to understand about Javert is that he is A, fiercely committed to finding Valjean, who is a fugitive, and B, a complete moron. He didn't recognize Valjean while discussing Fantine, and he doesn't recognize him while observing the cart incident either. But there's something familiar about this Monsieur Madeleine, he thinks. Monsieur Madeleine is strong as hell, isn't he? He's built like a shit brick house, I do say. And you know who else was built like a shit brick house? Fucking Jean Valjean! Luckily for Valjean, a man who looks just like him has been arrested and is set to rot in prison. Unluckily for Valjean, he has a heart of gold, and so he reveals his true identity to the court. Strangely, Valjean is allowed to visit Fantine in the hospital before heading to prison. The early 1800s, who can make sense of them? Fantine is decidedly not long for this world, but a sense of relief washes over her when Valjean swears to find and raise Cosette as his own. Fantine's like, oh, thank you for doing me this solid, mon frere, and promptly kicks the bucket. Javert arrives, announcing with joy that now is the time Valjean must be imprisoned. Valjean is like, <laughs> nah, no, now's not a good time, I'm sorry. I promised to find Cosette. And Javert is like, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I do not know who that is, and I am determined to spank your thick little ass with my baton, so shut that delicious honker of yours, Valjean. A fight ensues. Valjean escapes. Slam cut to Montreur Femel. Montreur Femel, I don't know. Montreur Femel, let's go with that. Where little Cosette is living under the tyrannical reign of Monsieur and Madame Tenardier. The Tenardiers are the worst. They make poor Cosette work like a dog while their own daughter, Eponine, enjoys relative luxury. They steal from the hapless fools who stay at their inn, and worst of all, they've been telling Fantine for years that Cosette is gravely ill. Liars! Bad people! Boo! Luckily for Cosette, Valjean pays the Tenardiers to release her into his care. Unluckily for Cosette... Well, actually, Cosette has it pretty good from here on out. Hers is a smooth road, I do declare. 
Flash forward nine more years. Commander Jean-Maximilien Lamarck, remember him from our history lesson, is close to death as a result of cholera, and the people of Paris are filled with dread. Lamarck is one of the few men in government who actually cares for the people. A student revolutionary group known as the Friends of the ABC has formed to ensure the protection of lower-class Parisians, though they've yet to take any real action. Fun fact, ABC is a twist on the proper French pronunciation of abasse, which means the abased or the lowly. Therefore, the group would be known as the Friends of the Lowly. Anyway, the leader of this group, Anjoras, and one of its members, Marius Pontmercy, oh boy, are discussing the implications of Lamarck's death as the Tenardiers, who now run a street gang, plan their latest robbery. The gang includes Eponine among its ranks, and she is head over heels in love with Marius. When Eponine speaks of Marius, she's like, oh my god, I love Marius so much. Marius is the most amazing human being to ever walk the face of the earth, and if he were to kiss me even once, I would surely burst into holistic flames. <laughs> and when Marius speaks of Eponine, he's like, uh, I'm sorry, who? Oh, oh, Eponine. Sorry, I thought you said a pony. Which confused me, because I don't own a pony. But Ebony, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. She's cool, she's cool. She has a nose, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um... I want to say two eyes? Yeah, Eponine. She's a real C-minus of a person. We play baseball sometimes. I bought her a hot dog. Anyway, the Tenardier's latest targets turn out to be none other than Valjean and Cosette. What a coincidence. Monsieur Tenardier recognizes Valjean immediately, but wait... What's this coming? Who's this coming around the corner? It's Javert. He's a police inspector in Paris now. What a coincidence. Javert intervenes in the robbery and straight up does not recognize Valjean. Only later, when Monsieur Tenardier points him in the right direction, is Javert able to put two and two together. Our antagonist lifts his head to the sky and screams, I shall capture that accursed Jean Valjean if it's the last thing I do! Next time, Gadget! Next time? Oh, I should mention Cosette and Marius meet during this stretch of the show. Marius is like, oh my god, I love Cosette so much. Cosette is the most amazing human being to ever walk the face of the earth, and if she were to kiss me even once, I would surely burst into holistic flames. And Cosette is like, yes, same, it me. As Cosette and Valjean flee from the prying eyes of Javert, Marius turns to Eponine and is like, hey, 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 buddy. Oh, boy, it kind of freaked me out there, just sort of hovering around me, just sort of always right here to my left. Hey, you're not doing anything, are you, dum-dum, stupid? Do me a solid and help me find Cosette. That's C-O-S-E-T-T-E, Cosette, because she is T-N-T dynamite and my dick is howling. Oh, oh, oh! Eponine agrees because she is a sap who appeals to high schoolers and college students who have yet to become fully self-actualized. A meeting of the Friends of the ABC is interrupted by Gavroche, a spunky little boy who brings word of Commander Lamarck's death. Uh-oh. Now is the time for revolution. Meanwhile, Cosette confronts Valjean and demands to know the truth about his murky past. Valjean is like, uh, let me get back to you on that. You like hot dogs, right? Let me whip us up a few thousand hot dogs. Have a hot dog. 
Eponine leads Marius to Cosette's home and watches from afar as the young couple makes with the loving and the kissing. So much loving, so much kissing. Maybe someone could give Eponine a kiss. <laughs> no, no, no kisses for Eponine. No, no. The Thenardier gang shows up to rob Valjean's home, and Eponine screams to sound the alert, which is nice. Valjean, assuming Javert has come for him, tells Cosette they must flee from Paris immediately. It is their only choice! As the June Rebellion draws ever nigh, our motley crew gathers on stage to summarize their various lots in life. End of Act 1, Act 2... The friends of the ABC have built a barricade to hold off those who would seek to squash their revolution. Javert, having infiltrated the ABC disguised as a hip young rebel, volunteers to spy on the approaching troops and return with information. In similar news, Eponine has dressed herself as a boy to become a member of the ABC, not because she believes in their cause, necessarily, but because she really wants to be with Marius. Marius does not care. He's like, look, dum-dum, take off that fucking page boy hat for the fucking first off, for the first off. Just shush! Now deliver this love letter to Cosette, that's C-O-S-E-T-T-E, dum-dum stupid, and try not to get shot, Okay. Eponine agrees, but the letter is apprehended by Valjean, who was not aware of Cosette's starstruck romance. Now, without a purpose, Eponine wanders the streets of Paris while shedding an ocean of tears. Why does Marius not love me as I love him? Why? Why? It's because you sound like a cartoon duck, quack, quack. French troops arrive at the barricade, and the friends of the ABC question how to proceed. Javert is like, hello again, my fellow hip young rebels. I suggest we get high, eat Doritos, and take a long, long nap, as the troops will definitely not attack tonight. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Now, who's up for filming a saucy, tasty knickknack? And the friends of the ABC are like, uh, what? Do you mean a TikTok? And Javert is like, yes, that thing you just said. Luckily for the friends of the ABC, Gavroche appears and is like, fucking fuck you, you fucking nerd. That's fucking police inspector Javert. Fuck you. Javert is summarily apprehended. Unluckily for the friends of the ABC, their plan to inspire a full-scale Parisian protest is not going so well and will not go so well for them in the long run. Spoilers. Eponine makes her way back to the barricade and is immediately shot by a French soldier. She falls into Marius's arms and confesses her love for him before dying. I love you, I love you, I love, love, love you, sweet Marius. And Marius is like, oh, Eponine, I am sad. Yes, for her, all she ever wanted was a glove. She kept talking about glove, 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 uh, a single glove for her stupid hand, which I assume was uh, cold or something. I will bury her now. Yeah, that's what you do when someone dies in your arms, right? Yeah, I'll figure it out eventually. Valjean appears dressed as a soldier, and the friends of the ABC are like, a French soldier? In this economy, you are the enemy, good sir. And Valjean is like, no, 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 I am my friend. Me friend, not foe. Here, let me shoot this military sniper that's trying to kill Enjoras. That should prove my loyalty, right? And the friends of the ABC are like, yeah, it does, yes. And Valjean is like, great, do me a favor and leave me alone with this Javert scoundrel, as I would prefer to kill him myself. That cool? The friends of the ABC agree that it is very much cool, and so the two men are left to their own devices. 
Shockingly, Valjean spares Javert by freeing him, though Javert is unimpressed. He will destroy Valjean when all is said and done, but for now he's going to run away like a big old baby. As the friends of the ABC fall asleep, Valjean prays to God, asking that Marius be spared from the impending violence for the sake of Cosette. Dawn arrives and the friends of the ABC come to accept that the residents of Paris are not showing up to stand by their side, womp womp. Regardless, they shall fight the French troops with all their might. Shortly thereafter, Gavroche is shot and killed while climbing the barricade, and an explosion of gunfire rattles the streets of Paris. When the smoke clears, the only ones left standing are Valjean and Marius, who has been shot. Valjean drags the boy into the sewers, followed closely by a manic Javert. Hours later, after having slipped into a state of unconsciousness, Valjean is robbed of a ring by Monsieur Thenardier. But when Thenardier recognizes Valjean's face, he's like, oh, okay, all right. This is too coincidental even for this show. I'm out of here! Valjean and Marius eventually make it back to the surface, only to be confronted by Javert. <laughs> I've got you, Valjean. You will never leave my sight again, you despicable hot dog thief. But Valjean is like, for crying out loud, can't you see this man is wounded? Give me an hour to drop Marius off at a hospital, and I'll come right back. I swear, I promise, I pinky promise. And Javert is like, Oh, okay. Suddenly, a terrible realization overwhelms our stupid, stupid Javert. Is it possible that Valjean is nice? And is it possible that he, Javert, is bad? Unwilling to explore these ideas a moment longer, Javert promptly kills himself by leaping into the Seine. Bye-bye, Javert. I hope you enjoy the bear claws they're serving in hell. Marius recovers from his injury, but cannot help but wonder who saved him from the carnage of the barricade. Valjean gives Marius and Cosette his blessing, before taking Marius aside for a man-to-man -man conversation. He's like, look, buddy, my name isn't actually Monsieur Madeleine. It's Jean Valjean, and I'm a fugitive from the law. Promise me you won't tell Cosette, okay? Come to think of it, why am I telling you any of this? Anyway, I have to flee the country now because I'm putting everyone in danger, I guess, I think. I don't know, so, uh, ciao, Bella! Smash cut to the wedding of Marius and Cosette. The Tenardiers, disguised as nobility, crash the party and attempt to blackmail Marius by painting Valjean as a murderer, insisting Valjean was seen carrying a corpse through the sewers of Paris. I know it was Valjean, says Monsieur Tenardier, because I stole this ring off his finger. Marius is like, oh, so that's who saved me, Valjean. Makes sense. Marius is unfazed by the blackmail scheme and, with Cosette by his side, manages to locate a dying Valjean at a secluded convent. Valjean is like, oh, awesome, hey, hello, yes, it's true, I'm dying. All right, okay, but now that I've seen Cosette one last time, I can finally rest in peace. So long! Well, actually, Cosette, here's a letter explaining my past and that of your mother. I absolutely could have told you all of this years ago in person, but, eh, you know how it is. We live in the 1800s, and conversations are... I don't know, scary? So long! Valjean's spirit ascends to heaven, literally, where he encounters Fantine... Alpenine and the friends of the ABC. Ah, ha, ha, we are no longer miserable. Hot dogs for everyone. The end. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1987 original Broadway cast album of Les Miserables, and I also watched the Tony Awards performance of At the End of the Day and One Day More. The only observation I have regarding the Tony Awards performance 
I mean, can we talk about the faces that are being made by Frances Ruffell as Eponine? Wow, Zers. She is curling that lip. She is making the mooniest, gooniest faces I have ever seen in my life. I will talk about this later. <laughs> I will go into this more in a moment, I should say. But the fact that that performance won a Tony Award is very, very funny to me. I do not know what she is going for. That is a very, very broad, old-school style of theatricality. That is opera. That, that would have been cheesy in the context of an old-school, back-in-the-day opera. Okay, so we will not be discussing the following sources. Here's everything I skipped over. The 1980 French concept album, the 1985 original London cast album, the 1988 complete symphonic recording, the 1989 and 1993 London studio cast albums, the 1995 10th anniversary concert cast album, the 1996, 2002, 2006, and 2007 studio cast albums, most of which I will say seem pretty questionable. Not that legit. We will not be talking about the 2010 25th anniversary tour cast album, and we will not be talking about all of the additional foreign language cast albums. We will not be discussing Tom Hooper's 2012 film adaptation, which I have seen. It was a while ago, around the time it came out. I didn't see it in a theater. I have seen it what a bad movie, right? We all know it's bad. What is there to say? It's fucking boring. Russell Crowe can't fucking sing. A lot of people in that movie fucking can't sing. And I think uh, people have just now realized that Hugh Jackman's not that good either. I never put that together. But yeah, that's a two and two that make four. He's not that good in that movie. And finally, we will not be talking about the 1995, 2010, or 2019 filmed concert stagings that are available on all of your streaming platforms and DVDs and Blu-rays. I have seen the 2010 concert, and it is quite impressive. Uh, Nick Jonas has never been more of a snackable twink, but the 40 minutes of speeches and encore performances, eh, that nearly broke me. You'd have to be a diehard Les Miserables mega fan to really appreciate these extended victory laps, and I am I'm no mega fan. Sad but true, sad but true. Now bring me prisoner two for six oh one. Your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means? Yes, it means I'm free. Now, that means you get your yellow ticket of leave. You are a thief. I stole a loaf of bread. You robbed a house. I broke a window pane. My sister's child was close to death, and we were starving. You will starve again unless you learn the meaning of the law. I know the meaning of those 19 years, a slave of the law. Five years for what you did, the rest because you tried to run. Yes, two for 601. My name is Jean Valjean, and I am Chabert. The opening track of the OBC album, Overture slash Work Song, definitively sets the tone for all that's to come. We're painting in broad strokes here, and no one is having an average day. Characters do not laugh in Les Miserables, they cackle like maniacs. Crying, as Cosette would say, is not allowed. Tear your hair out. Turn that sniffle, turn that sniffle into a whale, I do say. And if you've got beef, let him hear about it in the cheap seats, goddammit. No one ever got ahead in Les Miserables by being subtle. It's what I appreciate and find so funny about the show, and there are dozens of delightfully goofy examples from the OBC album I could cite. Oh, well, 
Why not? We're here. Let's cite some of them now, shall we? You have to applaud the guy who goes for broke with the line, When I get free, you won't see me here for dust. When I get free, you won't see me here for dust. The dumbfounded silence that follows is funnier than most real jokes. Lord love this random prisoner. He's the star of his own musical and no one is buying tickets. Wait, 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 wait. Well, let's rewind and talk about how this epic and expensive musical properly begins with someone hitting the meow meow setting on their keyboard. I would say we need to leave that shit back in the 80s, where it originated, where it belongs, but for some reason this laughable anachronism got to me. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 1800s! Meow, 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 meow. This is Broadway! Come on already! Now let's place our focus on Terrence Mann and Colm Wilkinson, who right off the bat are competing to see who can chew up and spit out the most scenery. I love when Mann says... You know what that means! And Wilkinson responds by saying, Yes, it means I'm free! And Man responds with, No! And not less than ten seconds later, Wilkinson is bellowing, My name is Sean Valshawn! He says, Sean. He says, Sean Valshawn. These nerds, these nerds showed up for Thanksgiving dinner. They are wearing bibs and they are in the mood for turkey. One more item before we move on. I'm sure translating lyrics cannot be easy, but upon identifying a recurrent setup, you would think Herbert Kretzmer could avoid using die as a rhyming payoff twice. Look down, look down, don't look him in the eye. Look down, look down, you're here until you die. Versus, look down, look down, don't look him in the eye. How long, oh lord, before you let me die? Yeah, die again? Here's an alternative. Tonight we'll run. Tonight is when we fly. That sucks, sure, but there are options. There are rhyming options, is my point. Herbert! Take the knife for a night. Turn your heart into stone. him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack instead he offers me my freedom I feel my shame inside me like a knife something I learned about myself this week. If you want me to sit down with this week's subject, you better make sure, you better make damn sure Colm Wilkinson is playing Valjean. Lame as Rob without Wilkinson is like the solar system without the sun. He is indisputably the show's anchor point, and once you remove him from the board, my interest in this show craters. Because let's be real, no one is better at legitimizing the dime store melodrama of Schoenberg and Boublil than Colm. He'll have his fun with an actor like Terrence Mann, but when it comes comes to a solo like, what have I done? He is on point. The urgency, the weight. I have yet to find such qualities in any other Valjean performance. 
I should have been in Combs' pocket long ago, considering how much I've enjoyed listening to him on Highlights from Jekyll and Hyde. That's right, baby. The man makes any song, even a B-side from Frank Wildhorn, sound like the most important composition you'll ever hear in your damn life. How does he do it? How does he sell a wild vocal downshift from madman to living saint without breaking his neck? He's a stately lion of a vocalist is what he is, and I let him roar those take an eye for an eye lyrics into my open mouth if I could. Shoot those notes to the back of my throat, papa. I'm pretty sure I've made this joke before. Then I was young and unafraid And dreams were made and used and wasted was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted, but the tigers come at night, with their voices soft as thunder. to say will make me sound like a total dunce, but be patient. I got a strong Patti Lapone vibe while listening to Randy Graff's rendition of I Dreamed a Dream. Lo and behold, I come to find Lapone played Fantine as a member of the original West End cast. I've absolutely listened to that cast album, so what happened? How did I forget Patty was there this whole time? Shall I renounce my title as the musical man? No, never. But let's talk about Randy Graff, who is throttling the hell out of this number without ever losing control. Therein lies the difference between a Randy Graff and, say, an Anne Hathaway, who leans too far in the direction of wanting to sound raw. Choosing to showcase hysteria over basic comprehensibility has done in many a well-meaning actor. Trust me, I, I know what I'm talking about. So remember, you're here, you're there to sell a product. It ain't all about you and your well of pain. Sell the notes. Sing the notes. I want to hear the lyrics. And I smell women, smell them in the air. Think I'll drop my anchor in that harbor over there. Lovely lady, smell them through the smoke. Seven days at sea can make you hungry for a poke. Even stokers need a little stoke.
I'll give you five. You're far too eager to sell. It's up to you. It's all I have. That's not my fault. Please make it ten. No more than five. My dear, we all must stay alive. My goal this week was to include as many of the hits associated with Les Mis as I possibly could, and I like to think we're covering about 90% of what fans would consider indispensable. Alas, Castle on a Cloud did not make the cut, and Lovely Ladies nearly fell into the bin as well, but we can't skate past Schoenberg and Bubliel's preoccupation with prostitutes, can we? Of course not. I have to wonder if Miss Saigon appealed to them as a subject precisely because it involved writing another number for prostitutes. All of the tired tropes from Lovely Ladies are mirrored in The Heat Is On in Saigon. Slobbering freak men tugging at their zippers, boastful women who inwardly bemoan their terrible lives, different era, same bullshit. In either instance, sex workers aren't really viewed as people. I'm not saying that back in the day, hold on for a second, I'm not saying that sex workers and prostitutes didn't have a hard fucking time of it. I hope you don't hear what I'm saying as a dismissal of the hardships that prostitutes and sex workers in general, sex workers, have experienced in their lives. I just, I have a real problem with how that, that profession and that life is represented on stage by these two composers specifically, okay? These characters are never given enough stage time to be truly viewed as real people, right? We leer at them, we pity them, and they disappear from our lives forever. That is the sum total of their arc. P.S. Does the Pirate Queen have a number about prostitutes? My collection of cast albums is quite vast, humble brag, and I, uh, I do not own that particular recording. Valjean, at last, we see each other plain. Monsieur Le Maire, you'll wear a different chair. Before you say another word, Javert, before you chain me up like a slave again, listen to me, there is something I must do. This woman leaves behind a suffering child. There is none but me who can intercede. In mercy's name, three days are all I need. Then I'll return. I pledge my word. Then I'll return. You must think me mad. I've hunted you across the years. Men like you can never change a man such as you. Many musicals have tried and failed to replicate the blockbuster formula of Les Miserables. Don't ask me to produce a list, as the only examples that come to mind are A Tale of Two Cities and Schoenberg and Bubliel's Miss Saigon. These shows fail in a number of significant ways, but their reliance on the argument as a source of drama is chief among them. Heed my words, earnest composers. Audiences can only handle so much when it comes 
to shouting matches. After 30 seconds, your lyrics will be reduced to little more than Peanuts-style whomping. You may as well have the crowd stand outside the theater and hold a glass up to the door. What's the purpose of writing a song if no one's going to process the lyrics, am I right? With Les Miserables, Schoenberg and Bubliel had the discipline to contain the bulk of their arguing within a single number, that being confrontation. There are other instances where Javert and Valjean bark at each other, but those moments read as echoes of a fully realized piece rather than the same dispute playing out in full again and again and again. Miss Saigon, by comparison, can't help but wallow in the inane and impotent nattering of its characters. It's enough to drive anyone mad. To review, yelling does not make for effective drama, so if there is to be yelling in your piece, choose your moment, take your shot, and do not look back. Seldom do you see honest men like me, a gent of good intent, who's content to be master of the house, doling out the charm, ready with a handshake and an open palm, tells a saucy tale, makes a little stir, customers appreciate a bon viver, glad to do a friend a favor, doesn't cost me to be nice, but nothing gets you nothing, everything has got a little price. Master of the house, keeper of the zoo, ready to relieve him of a soup or two. Watering the wine, making up the weight, picking up the knickknacks when they can't see straight. Everybody loves the landlord, everybody's bosom friend. I do whatever pleases Jesus, won't I bleed him in the end? Master of the house, quick to catch your eye, never wants a passerby to pass him by. Master of the House is far and away the best song in this show's stable. What is better than Master of the House? The Tenardiers are delicious weirdos who practically live outside of the show's reality, dipping in and out as they please while snatching up anything they can carry. These are the roles you want, my fun young actors of today. Forget about Marius, Cosette, Eponine, and the rest of those cherubic squares. If you're not dishing out sloppy eye kicks as a drunken Tenardier, what can I say? You lost out! As always, I am available for direct casting offers, and my phone is always on, I assume. It's yet to ring, because everyone's afraid my schedule is too full. Let me assure you, it is not. I await your call and your offer to play Monsieur Tenardier, so please reach out today. Reach out today. Reach out today. How about the Tenardier Waltz of Treachery, Jonathan? Do you like that one as well? I do, fair listener. I truly do. The Tenardiers are so single-minded in their hate and their greed, and the show makes no bones about their two-dimensionality, unlike Chavert, who we will now discuss further. Out in the darkness, a fugitive running, fallen from grace, fallen from grace. God be my witness, I never shall yield till we come face to face, 
till we come face to face. He knows his way in the dark, but mine is the way of the Lord. And those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. And if they fall as Lucifer fell, the flame, the sword. Stars in your multitudes, scarce to be counted, filling the darkness. Javert fascinates me. The material written for Javert fascinates me. Here we have someone who views himself as the holistic embodiment of law and order. Accordingly, Javert believes he's the only man standing between relative peace and total chaos. He uses God and the iron will of his uncaring superiors as an excuse to terrorize the public. In other words, Javert is, of course, a cop. And as I've come to realize and accept, cops are what? That's right, trash. Victor Hugo knew as much back in the 19... <laughs> the 1800s, I should say. Uh, cops are trash! They're also unbelievably arrogant and stupid, a description that fits Javert to a T. No one is smarter or more cunning than me, Javert. So how is it possible that everyone is eluding my awesome clutch? Perhaps the stars will have the answer? If I haven't already made the casting connection, let me do so now. Terence Mann played Javert in Les Miserables before going on to star as Chauvelin, the chief villain in Frank Wildhorn's The Scarlet Pimpernel. Pimpernel made no bones about the banalities of Chauvelin. That guy is a monster, and the show never bothers to contextualize or justify his actions. He's the bad guy. Bad guys exist. People are capable of being evil and largely uncomplicated. We know this, Don Donald Trump is in the White House. We know this. But when it comes to their antagonists, Schoenberg and Bublil would seem to be very interested in what makes Javert tick. They want him to be seen as a man of multitudes, someone who is eventually exposed to the moral grays of this world after being worn down by the actions of Valjean. But Schoenberg and Bublil only value the appearance of complexity. They're not putting in the work to actually achieve it, which is how we get stuck with a number like stars. Stars is odd. It's basically a restorative mantra for Javert, a chance for him to reestablish his agenda before stepping back into the world with newfound resolve. Hold on, let me get to my happy place. If I can spend a few minutes imagining what it feels like to bludgeon people with my baton, it will give me the strength to do so in real life. The stars, how they inspire me. In today's world, Javert would watch an episode of what? The Punisher, I guess? Why is this so gentle? Why is this song so pretty? What are we doing? Why are we softening the edges of a man who lives to inspire misery? And most importantly, where is the new information? We learn nothing new here. We already know Javert hates criminals because he was born in a prison amongst criminals. Does Stars expand on this idea? Do we discover, for example, that Javert's mother was murdered by thieves, rabid bread thieves, who were hell-bent on raiding the world of its precious virginal bread? No. Nope. There is nothing more. This is nothing more, I should say, than a typical Javert rant repackaged to sound like a child's lullaby. And we could do that with any type of music. Javert grousing about criminality set to steel drums. Javert raps. Javert sings to the country twang of an acoustic guitar. 
We can play this game all day, but it won't result in a substantial revelation. We don't need to understand why horrible men do the things they do, and if you must explore their motivations, actually do the work! No, 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 we did the work, mon frere! You see, this Chavert, he is evil because he hates evil! 75 Tony Awards, if you please! Now! In my life, I have all that I want. You are loving and gentle and good. But papa, dear papa, in your eyes I am just like a child who is lost in a wood. No more words, no more words. It's a time that is dead. There are words that are better unheard, better unsaid. In my life, I'm no longer a child and I yearn for the truth that you know of the years, years ago. You will learn truth that's given by God to us all in our time. In in my life she has burst like the music of angels, the light of the sun, and my life seems to stop as if something is over and something has scarcely begun. Eponine, you're the friend who has brought me here thanks to you. I am one with the gods and heaven is near. And I saw through In my life, and you're listening to L-E-Z-M-I-Z Radio. <laughs> Judy Kuhn is doing an excellent job as Cosette. She's certainly granting the character more depth than I would have expected, as in my mind, Cosette is a highly passive and reactive person, always on the edge of the narrative, always asking questions while being rebuffed by the men in her life. But Kuhn makes the most of her time by supplying Cosette with a quiet and steely indignation. Nothing gets past this woman, and if you feel awkward in the face of her calm interrogations, well, that's on you, not her. She has a right to information. Les Miserables without Judy Kuhn is like Les Miserables without Cole Wilkinson, if you ask me. Less alive, less compelling. A production of Les Miserables without Francis Ruffell. Now, that's something I can get behind. What is going on here? Ruffell makes her grand entrance on this track, and it's like... I've been hit in the face with a fly swatter. It's no wonder Marius has never fallen for Eponine. It sounds like she's been mainlining helium from the Goodyear blimp. I'm not saying we should strike this performance from the canon. It's simply too funny to reject outright. But how anyone, I'll say this again, how anyone thought this was worthy of a Tony Award is beyond me. One more day before the Shall I join my brothers when our ranks 
sit here and say One Day More is a rousing Act 1 finale that blows you to the back of the house. I don't have to point out how the number deftly reintroduces all 4,700 characters from this piece and uses their respective wants, needs, and ideologies to craft a stunning choral collage. It's been imitated and mocked on Broadway ad nauseum since it arrived on our shores, but if I need to go on record as being a fan, I shall do so. I am. But what truly matters is this. I performed one day more as part of my, say it with me, college musical theater trip. Yes, we didn't sing it on our own, mind you. I I believe the group who shared the stage with us was known as the Broadway Chorus. Yep, we had a musical theater troupe and a Broadway chorus. Jealous of my education, jealous of my education, jealous of my education, jealous of my education, jealous. I played Anjoros during this performance, which I would not have known if you had asked me at the time. I wasn't aware of the character I was playing, and I had zero context for the plot of Les Mis, but that didn't prevent me from screaming my face off. I recall someone saying, wow, Jonathan, I had no idea you could uh, sing like that. There was an edge to the compliment, if I recall. Shade hung over it, and if you think I don't recall every single slight from my college days, you'd be wrong. My brain is full of them. Oh, before I forget, we'll be ready for these schoolboys. They will wet themselves with blood is absolutely one of the most disturbing lyrics to be delivered on Broadway. It terrifies me on a level I can't quite articulate. On my own, pretending he's beside Pavement 
suffer from on my own syndrome do you often find yourself lying in bed listening to broadway tunes like on my own fantasies come true and i'm not that girl on repeat when characters like eponine princeton and alphaba meditate on their loneliness do you think to yourself it me do you dedicate hours of your life praying for a certain someone to come along and whisk you away from your lonely room well i hate to spoil this whole mood you're cultivating but time's up Do whatever it takes to rest yourself from this state of arrested development and stop using characters like Eponine as a personal point of reference. You are nothing like Eponine, okay? She is a thinly drawn dullard who subsists on casual eye contact with the man of her dreams. Do you want to live like that? Depression is a motherfucker. It's real, and I would never discount your feelings. Feel those feelings, my brothers and sisters, but... Understand, you are so much stronger than the characters to which you relate. You do not need a romantic partner to understand the meaning of fulfillment, therapy, medication, constructive journaling, true friends, trustworthy family. These are your tools. Eponine is no longer on the table, okay? Are you with me on this? Because I believe in you. Okay, so this is mainly me talking to my college self. Okay, sue me. He needs a push. He's way too fixated on straight guys and uninterested bisexuals. I'm not that girl does not hold the answer. Jonathan, can you hear me in the past? Listen, my friends, I have done as I said. I have been to their lines. I have counted each man. I will tell what I can. Be warned, they have armies to spare, and our danger is real. We will need all our cunning to bring them to heel. Have faith. If you know what their movements are, we'll spoil the game. There are ways that a people can fight. We shall overcome their power. I have overheard their plan. There will be no attack tonight. They intend to starve us out. Before they start a proper fight, concentrate their force, hit us from the right. Liar! Good evening, dear Inspector. Lovely evening, my dear. I know this man, my friend, his name's Inspector Javert. So don't believe a word he says, cause none of it's true. This only goes to show what little people can do. And little people know when little people fight. Because he's just a pup We'll fight like 20 armies And we won't give up So you'd better run for cover When the pup goes up I will never get over the appearance of Gavroche on this track, which is designated as Javert at the Barricade slash Little People. This is low-key madness. We've gone from sweaty rebel backdoor dealings to children's theater, and all I can do is picture this kid performing a leprechaun jig. Everyone's staring at him, dumbfounded. Who is this again? Right, Gavroche. When did he start showing up to the meetings? Yeah, he's helpful. I'm not saying he's not helpful, but... He's kind of throwing off our whole vibe. My name's Gavroche. I may be small, but I can fight rough. Yes, well, please stop gnawing on my ankles. 
Wilkinson is kind of like the debonair grandpa who sings at your wedding, and your friends are like, your grandpa sings? I didn't know your grandpa could sing. Is he any good? And then your grandpa proceeds to lull the doves to sleep and coax the moon out from behind the eaves and soften the hard hearts of wicked men and rinse the dandruff out of your hair and everyone in the room goes silent for once in their fucking lives. And when your grandpa's song comes to an end, you turn to your friends in your wedding dress and say, don't you ever fucking doubt my grandpa again. Do you hear me? And they bow their heads in shame and you hug your grandpa and he slips you a thousand dollars. What sort of devil is she To have me caught in a trap And choose to let me go free It was his hour at last To put a seal on my face Wipe out the past And wash me clean off the slate All it would take Was a flick of his knife Vengeance was his And he gave me back my life Damned if I'll live in The death of a thief Damned if I'll yield At the end of the chase I am the law And the law is not mocked Asked his pity Right back in his face There is nothing on earth That we share it is either Valjean or Javert. Javert's suicide strikes me as an unrealistic emotional beat for old Javert. Upon experiencing the slightest bit of internal skepticism, he hurls himself into the dark waters of the Seine without a second thought. Unrealistic! We've seen how cops react when people criticize their heinous behavior. They don't shrink. They double down. They become less inquisitive, more violent, and otherwise do everything in their power to prove they can't be intimidated. Seems like you're hopping on the A-cab bandwagon. The all-cops are bastards bandwagon. Correct. And I think, I think, I should say, I thank black figures for putting my focus where it should have been all along. No bad cop has ever felt bad for what they've done. At least not in a way that that matters. Cop tears are useless, and good cops don't exist. That's like saying your cousin is one of the good mobsters. He just makes the spaghetti for everyone. Shut up. Surely there are cops who feel bad for what they've done. So callous and dismissive this musical man is. Are you saying they should take a cue from Javert and throw themselves into the dark waters of the Seine? I am not. If they feel bad, they should stop being cops and actually dedicate themselves to serving and improving their communities. And if they believe in the legitimacy of the system they serve, they should own up to their crimes and take the place of a prisoner who landed a 20-year sentence at Rikers for smoking a joint on their back stoop. Fuck cops, the dark waters of the center are too good for them. Fine, fine, fine. But how is Javert's suicide as a song, Jonathan? Enough with the politics. Is it a good song or a bad song? Uh, it's bad. Try remembering a note of it. It's impossible. Nothing but a piggy crying wee-wee-wee all the way home. We can't close out our deconstruction of the score without a bit of the show's big finale, can we? Of course not. That would be cuckoo. Do you hear the people sing? Lost in the valley of the night. It is the music of a people 
climbing through the light for the wretched of the earth. There is a flame that never dies, even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. be as thrilling as one day more, but it'll do. That'll do, Les Mis. That'll do. God help me if I ever have to say Schoenberg and Boublil ever again. They sound like side characters from a late 90s animated French edutainment series. Now, normally at this point in the show, we would get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, but we have a brand new $3 a month donor, a Patreon donor. Their name is Christopher, and Christopher has earned a special musical shout out. And so we're going to get that right now. Take it away, musical shout out. Well, hello there. It's me, Horace Vandergelder here from Hello, Dolly. Now, as we all know, Christopher is our latest Patreon donor, and so I have been commissioned... Ha 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 ha! I have been commissioned to deliver a musical shout-out to Christopher. Hello, Christopher. I will sing to you in a moment. But here's the thing, Christopher. What did you do to earn... What did you do to earn this musical shout-out? Well, I'll tell you right now. You took a penny from your pocket. Yes, that's very true. And you took that penny from your pocket, and you gave it to me me, and then I gave it to Jonathan, who donated it to, you know, the Coalition for the Homeless and Black Lives Matter. That's a smart decision. You know, we have to use our money in wise ways. For instance, for example, there was this husky woman that I wanted to impress, and so I put a penny in my pocket, and I approached this husky, husky woman, and she said, is that a penny in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? I said, it's a penny in my pocket, and she said, well, you must be a rich, rich man, because that penny, obviously, is some sort of symbol of your long-lasting frugality, right? And I said, <laughs> it is. I am a very nice man, and you're a husky woman. Come along with me to some restaurant where we'll eat 16 quail. And she said, yes, I would like to do that. And so we did that, and I paid with, not the penny, the penny's a symbol. I paid with cash, baby, cash. 
<laughs> now, some might say that I, uh, I could spend less money on my fancy top hats or my, uh, my wacky mustaches that are curled at either end. But I say to them, look, 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 I gotta give myself a life of luxury, okay? Just be aware of the fact that I'm taking a penny from my pocket and I'm hanging it above my head and I'm a really cool guy. Look, I'm dealing with it, okay? It's a complicated scenario and I'm a white guy who's very rich and I, you know, it's not very, I'm, I'm made uncomfortable by all these accusations. People are always telling me, you know, yeah, you're always going after those husky women. You're always bothering them. And I say to them, shush, I'm Horace Vandergeller, okay? I have business to attend to, big business. I'm a good person. You know, what happened here? This started off so positive, and now I feel so uh, conflicted. It's like I've been uh, backed into a corner. <laughs> okay, uh, well, computers for everybody. I buy computers for everybody. Here, take the penny from my pocket. I don't care. I don't need it. Ah! Well, that was interesting. <laughs> final thoughts regarding Les Miserables. Okay, I don't really have any final thoughts. I think I've put everything out there that I need to put out there. I like Les Miserables well enough. I will say Act 2 features a great deal more in the way of filler, with melody lines from earlier numbers masquerading as the foundation for new songs. See the line from Lovely Ladies masquerading as a new song. Uh, that would be Turning. We didn't even talk about Turning, but Turning is just Lovely Ladies. I don't like when shows try to get away with that. In 1987, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was, of course, Les Miserables, and the additional nominees from that season were Me and My Girl, Rags, and Starlight Express. Do I believe that Les Miserables should have won the Tony Award for Best Musical? Well, when we compare it to Me and My Girl and Starlight Express, sure. Now, I'm not really familiar with Rags. I know that Rags, I think they just came out with a new cast album for that show, actually. So, obviously, that has a fan base. Maybe that's some hidden gem that I just I'm not currently familiar with, but for now, because I'm not familiar with Rags, we're gonna let Les Mis keep its Tony Award for now. You never know. It'll, it might change in the future. It might change when we return to this season. Who knows? Now it's time to rank the show against all of the other musicals we've talked about here on the podcast. Now, there were a lot of changes in the ranking this week. I made a lot of shifts. A lot of stuff got moved around to the point where I thought it would almost be easier to just start from the bottom and review all of the shows that we've talked about in order from bottom to top. Now, I normally don't, don't do this because it takes a fair amount of time to do so, but uh, why not? You know, it's such a rare treat that we get to do this. Now, if you want to see this list, of course, go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod. Go to our likes. It's the first tweet in the likes section, okay? It's a, it's a Google Sheet, and if you go to the second tab of that Google Sheet, you will find, you will find this ranking. Let's start, actually, let's start with the Phantom Zone. These are all the shows that don't really have enough material out there, not enough audio, not enough in the way of research material, so we had to relegate them to the Phantom Zone, huh? Okay, right? Those shows are a big deal. James Joyce's The Dead, Quilters, Merlin, and After Midnight. So let's start, okay, so our official ranking, let's start at the bottom here. 61, Miss Saigon. 60, Avenue Q. 59, South Pacific. 58, Ragtime. 57, Leader of the Pack. 56, Swinging on a Star. 55, Crazy for You. 54, School of Rock. 53, Tootsie. 52, Sugar. 51, Bubbling Brown Sugar. 50, The Goodbye Girl. 49, Blues in the night. 48, Big River. 47, Hair. 46, Cats. 45, Xanadu. 
42. 44, The Phantom of the Opera. 43, Grind. 42, Applause. 41, Shrek, The Musical. 40, The Happy Time. 39, The Wild Party. 38, The Wedding Singer. 37, The Lion King. 36, Juan Darien, A Carnival Mass. 35, Once. 34, City of Angels. 33, Dear Evan Hansen. 32, Les Miserables. There you are. 31, No Strings. 30, Woman of the Year. 29, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. 28, Once on this Island. 27, Rent. 26, Evita. 25, Kiss Me Kate. 24, Ain't Misbehavin'. 23, Hairspray. 22, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. 21, Kiss of the Spider Woman. 20, Grey Gardens. 19, The Producers. 18, Candide. 17, The Most Happy Fella. 16, Passing Strange. 15, Bring It to Noise. Bring It to Funk. Number 14, Hello Dolly. Number 13, Guys and Dolls. 12, The Scarlet Pimpernel. 11, You're in Town. 10, Man of La Mancha. 9, The Light in the Piazza. 8, Company. 7, Parade. 6, Sweeney Todd. 5, Into the Woods. 4, Gypsy. 3, Dream Girls. 2, Carolina Change. And 1, a chorus line. Now you see why we don't do that every week. <laughs> oh boy. Moving on to show-related ephemera, we did get a few contributions from our listeners this week. Listener David sent me some fun onstage bloopers, but the audio quality was a little scattershot, David, so we won't be hearing that today. I apologize, but thank you anyway. Dear David, fair David. Let's start with some audio from Orson Welles' 1937 radio broadcast. From the upload description, I'll just say this before we hear this, quote, this was originally broadcast broadcast over seven weeks, each one performed live. Could an undertaking such as this happen today? Nope, not a chance. Nobody has the talent or ability. Quote, okay, let's get that here. Prisoner, you were apprehended by police officers in the possession of stolen property. This court has reviewed the charge and here finds proven finally against the prisoner the crime for which he's on trial, namely... The burglary of one loaf of bread. Excellency, what does that mean? It means, prisoner, you're a thief. The court finds you guilty. I didn't know I was a thief. Jean Valjean, you are sentenced to five years in the galleys. The galleys. Five years at the oar of a prison ship. The terms of the code were explicit. Five years in torment. On the 22nd of April, 1797, a great chain was riveted, and Jean Valjean was a part of this chain. He was no longer Jean Valjean. He was 24,601. What had become of the sister? What became of the seven children? Who cared about that? What becomes of the leaves of the young tree when it sawed at the trunk? this time, Jean Valjean talked little, and he never laughed. When he left the galleys, he had not shed a tear for 19 years. 19 long years. For near the end of his fourth year in the prison ship, Jean Valjean escaped. On the evening of the second day, he was retaken. Number 24601, for attempted escape. The prisoner's sentence extended three years. Three years, which made eight. The sixth year. 24,599? Here. 24,600? Here. 24,601? 24,601? 
Moving on, we had a few contributions from Patreon donor and a listener, Neil, who wanted us to talk about Les Miserables this week. Okay, so Neil sent me a couple of videos. This first one is Colm Wilkinson representing Ireland at Eurovision 1978 by singing the song I Was Born to Sing. Let's get that. I said it would never work. You said let us try. I said I'm a traveling man and I'll only make you cry. When the feeling hit me and I had to move along, you said you were right, I guess. You must sing your song. And a man is born to do one thing, and I'm born to sing. And I must take the good time and the bad time that it brings. And I missed you in the morning, but most of all at night. And I couldn't stop the music, so I tried with all my Also from Neil, a portion of a TV documentary. Uh, the portion we're going to be hearing is all about the initial reviews for Les Miserables. Let's get that now. This is the, I believe this is the reaction to the original London production. And then we woke up the next morning and the reviews are awful. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo is one of those daunting French novels that generally comes in two volumes. I've personally had them in the house for 20 years and still haven't read them. But then I've never seen till now any of the attempts that have been made to popularise the book. Well, Tony, have they managed it? I mean, it gave me a headache, I have to admit. Uh, I would have thought it was absolutely impossible to pastiche the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber if we start there, given that the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber is entirely pastiche. We are also given an endless sequence of extremely banal lyrics which, and, and songs which seem to be specifically arranged not to refer to the drama. What these lyrics actually manage to do is a kind of all-purpose bland out. I mean, they reduce everything to a kind of sentimental, mawkish gibberish. The first reviews were very poor. I mean, almost entirely bad. Rather predictably so, because the average drama critic in England then, and pretty much the same now, they don't really like musicals very much. We read in some dailies what could be worse than a bad musical, a French musical. Cameron used to have a lunch after the opening night and uh, the lunch of Les Miserables after the opening at the Barbican was like uh, attending a funeral. The great Bernie Jacobs, who owns half the theatres in New York at that time, came and he said, my advice to you, gentlemen, is if you've got a stiff, you bury it. Coming up next, I found a video known as Sam Regal's Les Mis Audition. That's the name of the YouTube upload. This news segment, which follows the casting process for a Kennedy Center production of Les Mis, was uploaded by Sam Regal, who was chosen to play Gavroche as a child. Per Sam's Twitter bio, he is now the voice director for the DuckTales revival, as well as a number of other animated series. We'll mainly be hearing from the condescending broadcaster who introduced uses this segment because, wow, who 
wouldn't want to push this guy into a fountain. On that hit musical has elevated two local youngsters from the obscurity of community theater, where they worked for cookies and milk, to the prominence of the Eisenhower Theater, where they work for cookies and milk and $400 a day. Their success story begins in the spring, when they are just two faces in the crowd, a crowd of starry-eyed youngsters who would give a year's allowance to win the role of Cosette or Gavroche, otherwise known as the Les Mis Kids. Sam had a great voice, which is a number one priority. He was skinny, he was a little bone, which is great for Les Miserables because that's what it's about. Everyone's hungry and starved and lean and um, and his very bright eyes, very bright energetic eyes. Because you don't want to die in one position and the next time they see you that you're in a different position. So really give it to him, give him all that emotion, make that audience cry. And Sarah, she's just beautiful, beautiful big watery brown eyes and the hair and you know she looks like the poster. Which is not why we cast her, she could also sing, thank goodness. Miserable continues its Kennedy Center run until October. At any given performance, you may miss our Cosette and Gavroche. Alternating with road company kids, they only work three days for that $1,200 a week, which means their college educations are in the bank. When Capital Edition continues, that's where we will be, in the bank, cashing in on a character named Taylor Burke. Where they work for cookies and milk and $400 a day. What a drip. We have here a video from Jenna. This is a clip from the animated series Animaniacs. It's a Runt and Rita segment featuring some parodies of well known Miz tunes. Let's get that. Do you hear the poodle's bark? Barking the barks of angry mutts. It is the high-pitched yap of pedigree dogs whose mouths will not be shut. We will break down the prison wall. We will destroy the restaurant. We are revolting poodles following Runt the of the world unite! Hooray! Free lay misery animals! Down with imprisonment! Definitely down! Dig down, dig deep, lay misery animals! Dig down, dig deep, to freedom through a tunnel! And finally, this is such a crowded wonderfully crowded, I should say, show-related ephemera segment. Finally, we're going to be listening to the opening theme song for that anime series I mentioned a while ago, Les Miserables Sojo Cosette.
what show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Wait Until Your Padre Gets Home. Everyone ready? And then away we go. Oh, brother. Okay, so we have landed in the 2012 Tony Awards season. This is a show that was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 478 performances, and it's nice work if you can get it. Oh, great. (laughs) Another one of these fucking shows. All right, nice work if you can get it. I'll try to approach it with an open mind. I... I suppose. <laughs> uh, I have to talk about these shows at a certain point, so whatever, I suppose. Whatever. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, at the top of July, our payout will be donated to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, 100% of that payout. And beginning August 2020, and indefinitely, we're going to be donating 100% of our proceeds. Our payouts will be donated to Black Lives Matter. Now, you can donate $1, 3 5 or $10 a month. If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to these main feed episodes. You get them two days early. You get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Let's do that now. Thank you for donating. Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shianti, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage production Emma, and a review of Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, I believe is the full title of that concert. You also get 12 episodes, season one of Radio Boy. That's wrapped up, baby. You get that full season now if you give at least $1 a month. Oh, that's a delightful show. That's like a audio journal show. I normally have a longer log line for that, but move Moving on, and finally, if you donate $1 a month, starting June 24th, 2020, you're going to have access to a brand new monthly series known as M3, The Movie Musical Man, for which every month I will watch three movies, movie musicals, I should say, that are tied by a common theme. Again, the theme of our first episode, dropping on June 24th, 2020, is Stone Cold Classics. So we're going to be talking about The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, and The Umbrellas of Shabur. Now, let's say we move up to the $3 a month tier. You give me $3 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. We heard from Horace Vandergelder. That was bewildering, to say the least. And you also get season one, ten episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast. Five dollars a month gets you everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. Neil got to do that with the Lay Miz this week. You also get season one, twelve episodes of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you get access to my ongoing review series for Broadway and Chicago Productions, and Shout About It, Volume 1, a collection of 5, 6, 7, 8 ads and musical shoutouts from the first 25 episodes of the show. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, oh, how wonderful, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get the Snub Club, Season 1, 12 episodes, they're all about musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a 5-star review, and if you're listening through uh, a streaming service that might be Podbean, 
Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com, or Stitcher. Thank you very much for streaming the show. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, whoa! You know what that sound means? Ah, yes. Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, of Edition, and good night. Every day, one at a time. Legato, you may take my years, but cannot lock my soul away. All the years I had to I'll run, chase you through the so years. long ago it all now began. Now your journey's out of In end. the shadows on you my shame. You will pay for what you've done. But was I ever to Death play? will be your only friend. Do I let this fight end now? Do not interrupt Just me. Just in this life of let pain. Let me finish what I need will to say. Will the end welcome now? Fine, I'll let you finish will first. Will my journey be in vain? Don't let me get in your I way. I only stole a loaf of bread. Are you finished all now? All I needed to survive. Okay, now it's if my I turn. end up in your cell, Tell me how some give and take. I have stayed alive. Let me get in a word at least. Do I tell him that I love him? Do I tell him of his child? Now where did this bitch come from? I have no idea. One at a time. Will he ever know Lady, his daughter? Lady, seriously, please hang on. Recognize her It's hard eyes. enough to talk to him. Did you say my daughter? Yours and mine. One at a time. It's called out. What we can from every pocket on fire? What's with all the smoke? Oh, now we're all ears. Great.